one of the reasons we're working through this letter is because uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy has been sent to Ephesus, where that church is, to revitalize this church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus was Uh, The technical term is a mess, a complete mess, all kinds of issues going on. And so Paul needed to write to Timothy, hey, Timothy, here's what you need to do. We've been working through it. We've dealt with all kinds of issues. And now we're at a point where we are uh, reading about how the church is to care for the caretakers, that is the elders, how the church is to care for the elders over them in the church. Now last week, we were in chapter 5, verse 17, and I'll just say, um, it can be a little bit uncomfortable uh, to preach on this particular passage. (laughs) It can feel self-serving. Verse 17, as you know, if you were here last week, says, let the elders uh, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox who, when it treads out the grain. The labor deserves its wages. And as you know, if you were here last week, that the point of those verses is essentially, hey, church, pay your pastors. Now, I promise that's not self-serving. That's not the intent. I'm not up here. I'm well taken care of. Things are good. God is good. And yet, I find this to be so important for our church. This is crucial for us to understand, and if I were to drop dead at the end of the sermon, I hope it doesn't happen, but if it were to happen, then this would be still very relevant for us. I hope that we understand as a church how we are to care for certain elders that God has put over us. Uh, When you were a kid, you probably at some point heard the phrase, respect your elders. Did you hear that? Uh, hopefully, parents in this room, you're still telling that to your kids. You need to respect those over you. You need to respect your elders. Hey, uh, the kids in this room, you need to know that you don't treat your grandfather and your grandmother and your aunts and uncles in the same way you treat your buddies on the playground or your buddies on your team. Uh, there's a difference that those who are older are to be given a certain measure of respect. Now, in the same way, we are not to treat everyone in the church in the exact identical way. The Bible is clear. In fact, if you remember back to chapter 5, verse 1, you'll see it right there, that Timothy was given certain commands from Paul that he ought to treat older men differently than older women and younger women, different free from younger men, and he ought to understand everybody is different and has to approach them according to their age, their gender, their status. Not that that's discrimination, but that, that you understand the person. You understand who they are and you love them accordingly. Timothy needed to do that. Now we find that widows were given the same task. We saw that in chapter 5, verses 3 to 16, that certain widows need to be cared for in a certain way. And then we get to the section we're at now where elders are to be cared for in a certain way. How do you treat the elders in the church? How do you respond to the elders that God has put over you? It's really important for you to know how to do this. It's healthy in a church that you know your elders, that you know who they are, that you understand them and they know you and there's a relationship there. And you might have thought that the pastors slash elders slash overseers, they're all the same thing in Scripture. You might have thought that they had an obligation to you 
but you didn't have much an obligation to them. That it was their job to minister to you, and it was your job to receive their ministry. And here we encounter that there are actual responsibilities that the church is given in the way they are to care for their caretakers, the way they are to treat their elders. Let me just remind you, we went uh, through chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 a few weeks ago, where we talked about what elders are in the church. We saw in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 3, these are men of character. These are men of conviction who can teach the Word and they're competent to do so. God has ordained that the church be led by qualified men who labor in preaching and teaching, providing oversight for the flock. That is the intention of the church. These are to be men of the uh, kind of character that they're above reproach, they're self-controlled, they're respectable, and the one qualification in terms of their competency is that they are men who handle God's Word. They are teachers, preachers, counselors with the Word of God, and they help lend direction for the church as a whole. They're shepherds of the flock. While they are called in their office overseers at times, sometimes elders, the main verb that is often used to describe what they're supposed to do is the verb uh, shepherd, what we now call pastor. These elders holding this office are to shepherd the flock. These men of character are to hold an office and they are to be shepherding the flock. And we know, and you probably know, having seen probably at some point in your life, Sadly, it's too familiar. Elders who abdicate their responsibility to shepherd the flock, who are not faithful shepherds of the flock, and therefore the whole church suffers. You've probably seen that at some point in your life. These men are responsible for caring for the flock. Their leadership is absolutely essential to a healthy church. And now the section we come to now is not only talking about the elders' leadership, it's okay, how do we treat these men in the church? How, how does the church relate to those who are above them? Respect your elders, okay, but what does that mean? And the image that I'd like you to use in your mind to, to create the picture for the, the leadership of the elders and the submission of the church family is the image of a loving mother and father who, who tenderly lead their children, feed their children, know their children, love their children, and the children respond with beaming respect, admiration, and even loyalty. We're going to see more specifically how you as church members ought to think about your relationship with the elders of a church. That even if this is the first Sunday and your last Sunday, and you end up being in another church, or at some point the Lord moves you on from here, this is so important for us to know because it contributes to the health of a church. That a healthy family just isn't the parents doing their thing if the kids are all out of control not doing their thing. In a church family, it is both the leadership and those in the membership who are responsible to contribute to the health of a congregation. And here we get some directions for how you are to treat the elders in the church. Let me read the entire section uh, so you get it in your mind, and then we're going to look at three ways that you care for the caretakers. Verse 17, let's read together. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, 
so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. He has just spoken about widows, verses 3 to 16, how the church is to care for them, and now he brings up the topic of elders. And if you've noticed, there are three main ideas that he's communicating in this section about how the church is to consider their elders. I'm going to give you three Ps so that you can jot them down, but there's more complexity under these, these single words. But, but we're going to get to those in a little bit. The, the, the Ps are this, care in how you protect them. Sorry, actually, that's the second one. I, I skipped one. Provide for them. Secondly, how you protect them. And thirdly, how you pick them. The, the church is going to be called here. We're going to see this. How you provide for your elders, how you protect your elders, and how you pick your elders. Let's look at the first one. Number one, the church must provide for your elders. Verse 17, we already read it. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Those who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That word rule there uh, is the same word used in chapter 3, where he's talking about the elder's qualifications at home, and he mentions the idea that an elder needs to be one who manages, see that word manage in chapter 3, verse 4, manages his household well. That word manage is the same word translated here differently in verse 17, translated rule. It's a word that could be a little bit hard to pin down in terms of exactly the right way to translate it because it could mean care, it could sometimes mean lead, it could sometimes mean manage. If you have an NIV, the, the translation goes like this, let the elders who direct the affairs of the church, and that's probably a good interpretation there. He's talking about these elders who are certain, uh, certain leaders in the church. They're ruling the church. Rule might be too strong a word if we're talking about the English language here, but it is nonetheless what they used. Manage might be good as well. These are elders who are responsible to lead in the church. And what he's saying is the way that they are cared for is that they are to be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, let's be clear what this means. Uh, this means that elders who are laboring to rule and lead and manage and oversee in the church ought to be considered worthy of the task. They ought to be considered uh, honorable. Uh, the church has to honor these particular elders. It says double honor here. And we know for certain that he's talking about financial compensation because in chapter 5, verse 18, he goes on to quote two different passages, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and it makes it abundantly clear he's referring to money. We know it refers to money, but we know it's not only money. He, he's saying that the church needs to honor certain men. Now, let, let me be clear here. Not all elders are to be paid 
Do you see it here in verse 17? Not all of them. All, all elders are to be honored. We see in other places in the Bible that all elders are to be respected. Hebrews 13, 17, they are to be obeyed. They are to be submitted to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, elders are to be loved. But not all of them are to be paid. And so he's drawing this a specific kind of elder. He's describing as the one who leads well, rules well, manages well, to be worthy of double honor, especially or in particular, the ones who are laboring in the preaching and teaching ministry. The verses he uses, one from the Old and one from the New Testament, are to build the case, hey, this is about honoring your elders, but let me make it crystal clear. This is about paying them. (laughs) This is about money, Paul says. I want you, Timothy, to understand that your church would be helped if you had elders freed up from having to go get a nine-to-five job so that they could devote the lion's share of their week to studying the Scriptures so as to teach it to the church. Uh, the idea of the ox and the grain. You guys maybe have read this and go, what in the world does this have anything to do with paying your elders? What does the idea of an ox uh, treading grain have to do with paying pastors who preach? Uh, this is a common statement in the Old Testament. And what would happen in the, these days, this agricultural kind of culture, uh, this would happen. That you'd have your ox. That ox would be tied up to a millstone, and that ox would be walking around crushing grain, and they would make the grain ready to be useful uh, for different things if you wanted to use it to, in your food. The ox would tread the grain. But what would happen, sometimes the owners of the ox would see this ox walking around and eating the grain as it treaded it out. And the owner would go, hey, that's my grain. This ox is eating my grain. I want more grain, and so I'm going to put a muzzle on this ox, and I'm going to make it keep doing its work, but I'm going to hope that it eats less so I can have more for myself. And you know what would happen, of course, what would, the ox, uh, what would happen to that poor ox? That ox would be, it's cruel, right? It's like giving a nice steak meal right next to someone and then saying, nope, can't have any of it. This ox just wants to eat the food and it can't have any of it because it's muzzled. And so it gets tired. It gets hungry. It lacks the sustenance to keep it going. So it actually works less diligently. It gets less done. It's actually less productive. And Paul uses that illustration to say, hey, there are certain elders in the church They're laboring to preach and to teach, to lead the church in this way. And one of the ways you care for them to make sure that they're giving you all they can give and they're being productive in as much as they can, you don't want them to get productive or frustrated. You don't want them to get so tired out that they can't produce any good feast for the church on a Sunday. And so what you need to do is not muzzle that pastor. You got to make sure that he's able to be provided for in the work that he's in. That's what he's saying. Now, this is all throughout the New Testament. If you, if you want to see where all the places Paul brings this up, listen to last week's sermon. But the, the summary of Paul's teachings on this is 1 Corinthians 9.14. It doesn't get any clearer than this. Listen, Paul says, The Lord commanded, this is Jesus' command, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, Paul said, I'm not going to take advantage of the right, and he had very strategic reasons for doing that in Corinth, but the general principle that Paul always taught that the laborer who is preaching the gospel, who's laboring in the word to make sure it's being taught to the church, ought to be compensated, so he's freed up to do it. You say, well, how do, you, how do we do that? How do we make that work? 
Uh, you survey all the businessmen in the region and ask them how to compensate your pastor and then see what they come up with. What's a, what's a wage? No. You get all the, the churches and all their pastors. Maybe you get all the, the same churches that are roughly the same size. Ask them what they pay their pastors. No, that's not how you do it. Uh, you, you say, okay, well, the pastor's family is this big and, and every additional kid, we're going to give them a bonus. Uh, no, that might grow the nursery, but that's not the intent there. How, how, do, you, how do you know how, what to pay the pastor? Here's, here's the whole goal. The, the point is pay him enough so he's not thinking about whether he can feed his family. Pay him enough so he's not going to sleep every night wondering if he's going to be able to provide. That's the whole point. Paul is saying, hey, these, these guys, free them up. Free them up so they can devote their time to studying Scripture so they can feed you. So they can feed you the truth. You don't want these preachers and teachers, these elders who are laboring and preaching and teaching to, to, to go to bed at night wondering what's going to happen if they don't get paid. You don't want them surfing Craigslist for odd jobs in their spare time. You don't want them putting the kids to sleep and then booking it to McDonald's to flip burgers so they can make a little money on the side. Uh, this is not the intent. He says, make sure that the oxen, just like oxen, you don't muzzle them. Uh, just like <laughs> Jesus said, labor deserves his wages. Make sure you're paying those who are feeding you. Really, Paul is saying, this is an investment in your own spiritual health. The church is investing in its own spiritual health as it pays its pastors to do the work of ministry so that the Word of God can be taught. You say, okay, how do we know who these men are? How do we know which ones are, are to be supported in this way? Well, you've got to see the words here. Look at it, verse 17, the second part of it, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Who, who, are the, who are the men? They are the men, they are the elders who make it their job, make it, and it's a job done that they do begrudgingly. This is a job they embrace. This is a job they love. They want to labor in the Word of God so that they can preach it. That is their desire. Pay the ones that are longing to preach. They are able to preach and teach. They're effective in preaching and teaching. Make sure these guys are freed up to do the work necessary to get the church fed. You might call these guys weird. I'll take that label. These are the guys that get excited about a pile of books on the desk. They get excited about a few hours of uninterrupted free time to get the Bible open, to start studying, to looking at words and grammar and syntax, uh, definitions. There are some weirdos out there that love this stuff. And they just want nothing more than hours in the books so that they can study not just to get a big head, but to love the church in this way. That they love to teach it and preach it and counsel with it and talk about it and help build up the body of Christ in the truth. They long for these things. You say, well, how long does a sermon take to prep? Uh, it varies. <laughs> it varies according to the experience of the preacher, the education of the preacher, the opportunities of the preacher. But let me just tell you that, that, look at this word here, labor. You see that word? Those who labor in preaching and teaching. The word literally refers to working to the point of exhaustion. Working to the point of fatigue. Wearing yourself out, preparing to teach the word. Uh, yesterday, there were a few of us who decided to go run a 10K. I'm not a runner Never been a runner. Runner has, running has always been a form of punishment in all the sports I played, but I did it anyway. 
And I went out and I ran the 10K and let me tell you that when it came to the finish line, I was hurting. I was, I was aching in about every area of my body and I was sweating. I was longing for the time I crossed that line and finished so I could plop on the grass and just rest. I was exhausted. This is the imagery given in this word labor is the, to work to the point of you're breaking a sweat trying to understand God's Word so you can preach and teach it. You're, this is the thing you're putting your effort into. These are the men that need to be given compensation to teach the certain elders who meet the character qualifications in chapter 3 and they have these certain desires to labor, to work, to exhaust themselves to the point of fatigue, handling the Scriptures so that the contents of them could be freely given to the church. How long does it take? Well, why does it take so long? Why do you need a whole, you know, can't you do that in your free time? Can't you get a full-time job and do it on your spare time? Think of all the things that go into struggling and agonizing to understand the text. Think about this. First, there's the struggle with the text. Uh, the, the preacher has to understand the text. That means he's got to get into the words. He's got to get into the phrases. He's got to dig for the author's intended meaning. Listen, we're not here... <laughs> to tell a bunch of emotional stories, to whip you up into a frenzy, get you all excited. We don't evaluate success by the number of tears dripping down your face at the end of a sermon. What we're aiming to do is instruct you in the truth. And we believe that when the truth is taking hold of the minds and hearts of the people, it will absolutely change your heart and it will change your actions it will change your life. And so the, the, the game we're playing is not this emotional work you up, get you excited, and you leave here all thrilled, and you start Monday morning having not changed a bit. Truth changes people's lives. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, Jesus prayed. We are all about getting the truth out to you. And so there's a first struggle with the text. We've got to see what the author intended when he wrote these words, what the Spirit intended when he inspired them. And so we are doing word work. And then there's a sense that the work we're doing today is much harder than when it was a couple thousand years ago when it was written, right? There's a different culture we've got to bridge. There's a different language we've got to understand. There's different axioms and phrases that were said then that aren't said now. There's all kinds of bridges that we need to understand. It's not easy. It takes time to understand this stuff. We're not interested in putting slapdash sermons together and making this emotional, frothy kind of thing happen here. We want truth. So we labor with the text. And any preacher also, in addition to struggling with the text, there's a struggle with his own heart. Because preaching is an intensely spiritual thing. That the elders who are going to be laboring in preaching and teaching are the ones, if they're doing it effectively at all, are going to be the ones that are trying to first apply the things they're learning to their own hearts. That means the preacher needs time to marinate in this stuff. To think about it. He's got to let the Scriptures shed light on his own heart. He's got to be given time to bring it to repentance if necessary. He's got to apply it to his own life first. Sermon prep is the most scrutinizing form of heart evaluation, if it's done right. That takes time. Thirdly, you got the struggle with the text. you got the struggle with the preacher's heart. There's a struggle with the presentation. If you've ever presented in front of a, a group of people, it takes time, even if you understand everything right, it takes time to understand how you're going to present this to the body. 
takes time. Well, what kind of outlines are you going to use? What kind of illustrations are you going to use? Those kind of things. That takes time. And then lastly, there's the application. Preacher's got to think about how he's going to apply the, the text. He's not only thinking about the text. He's thinking about the names and the hearts of the people who are sitting in the chairs in front of him. He's going, my people need to hear this. How does this apply to them? How does this written all these thousands of years ago apply to the people here right now this morning? He's got to think about that. Listen, friends, that takes time. It takes time. You ever written a 20-page paper? Any of you? Come on. You had, to, you had to do your research. You had to put in the hours. Maybe you had to even present it. The preachers and elders who are laboring in preaching and teaching are doing something akin to that every single week. And they're weird because they like it. But that takes time. And so what Paul is saying here, make sure these men are helped out, honored, double honor to the degree that you value their work so much that you're willing to fund it so they can give their time solely to doing this. What about you? Do you how much do you value the preaching of God's Word? Are you willing to invest in it? That really is the question here, that the church ought to invest in the preaching of God's Word. And when they're investing in the preaching of God's Word, they're investing in their own spiritual growth. This is what the elders who rule well are supposed to do. They're they're laboring in this way. Now, it's intensely spiritual work, isn't it? But these guys are mere men. In a sense, there's nothing special about them. They have a unique gift to preach, but just like everyone else, they stub their toes, they get coughs, they make mistakes, and they struggle with sin. Now, the next section, right here, brings up the question of how do you deal with this guy, this elder, if he's in sin? How how do you... Deal with a pastor, elder, overseer's sin. Now, churches often adopt two mindsets here. And they're both bad. They're both the opposite problem. Now, on one hand, sometimes churches adopt what I'm going to call the fishbowl mentality. This is what they do. They put the pastor in the fishbowl. They put him up in front of everyone. And they watch his every move. They're watching his every move. They're watching his wife. They're watching his kids. They're watching how he spends his time. They're watching how he spends his money. They're watching everything about him, and they're critiquing him. They want to see if he's doing everything perfectly. They put him in the fishbowl, and they examine him. There are churches that have done this. I remember sitting with an old seasoned pastor who is recounting many, uh, many years of his ministry and how he had served in different churches. And he told the story of one of his co-elders who had been laboring with him for years but then had turned on him and had set up private meetings where he was secretly recording their conversation so he could try to trap him in his words and accuse him to the congregation. I mean, talk about being put in a fishbowl. Here was an elder trying to disqualify his own pastor by 
trying to catch them doing something that lacked integrity. In this approach, in this mentality, the church is given a license to kill. The, the, the church is given this, this deed that says, hey, here you go, have Adam, it's hunting season, go for it. Whatever you can see, whatever you can find, he's in the fishbowl, he's our responsibility, let's keep him holy, let's keep watching him, let's watch everything we can to make sure he doesn't err. That's a fishbowl approach. There's the other approach that's on the opposite side that's just as dangerous, but dangerous in a different way. We're going to call this one the hush-hush mentality. This mentality is when you don't really want to deal with the elder's sin because maybe he's a good preacher. Maybe his ministry's growing. This is where loyalty trumps truth. This usually happens when the leader has lots of influence, lots of money, maybe lots of supporters, and he's living in some sort of disqualifying sin, but no one's willing to say anything or do anything because if he's removed, then the income of the church is in question. This often happens in megachurches where the pastor is so much the centerpiece of everything that's happening that if he were to leave, the church would just fall apart. Sometimes this happens. And that pastor starts deviating in character or in doctrine. And they're disqualifying themselves. But the other guys are going, I don't know, if we pull him out of the pulpit, this whole thing falls apart. And look at all the other good things that are happening here. Look at all the other positive things that are happening here. So for the sake of those other things, let's let the sinning elder just keep going. We'll keep the hush-hush going on here. And we're going to make sure everything kind of stays together. Now Paul has to deal with both of these issues. And Paul is amazing because he's so perfectly delicate in the way he addresses both issues. Look with me and see how he does this. And this is where we're going to see number two. If you're taking notes, here's number two. It's a little bit of a longer point because it contains two things that there are churches to do. Number, two, number one, protect the elder from sinning members and protect the members from sinning elders. This is how the church is to be caring for their elders. They need to be protected from sinning members but the members need to be protected, be protected from sinning elders. Look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here he's dealing with what we might call the fishbowl mentality. Don't admit a charge. Don't bring up a charge. That is strong language. It is very strong language that he's using here. Don't even entertain it. Don't even have any credibility that you're going to lend toward it. Shut it down. If there's a charge against an elder that's just one person on their whim, they're charging an elder, they're accusing an elder, that charge needs to be shut down. Don't even admit it. Don't even tolerate it. Shut it down. And verse 20 is dealing with the hush-hush mentality. However, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. He's dealing with both issues here. Let's look at the first. Protect the elder from sinning members. Like I said, this is, a, this is an intense charge here. Don't let it happen. Don't entertain a charge. Don't even consider an accusation against an elder when it's unsubstantiated. If someone comes to you and they got some juicy stuff to say about an elder in the church, shut it down. Don't even entertain it. Don't act as if it's credible. Don't say, oh, really? Tell me more. No, shut it down. Kill it. 
If it comes knocking at your door, you slam the door in its face. You don't admit an accusation. You don't admit a charge against an elder. Listen, it's important for us to understand that the currency of ministry is trust. What, what, what enables ministry to happen is trust. When, when elders live trustworthy lives, that's why their character is so important in chapter 3, and the members are able to trust them, ministry can happen. Because they say, this is someone I trust. I can give my life to following their example because they're following Jesus. I want to do that. But if trust evaporates, if there are acids destroying the culture of trust, if that poison is released into the church where there is lack of trust in the leaders, I've been in a church where that was the case many years ago, that the elders were not trusted because they lacked integrity. If you are ever in that situation, listen, it is very hard to have any ministry ever take place. Very hard to let any ministry get going. And so what do you do? You don't admit a charge. You slam the door in its face. You shut it down. Accusation will destroy trust. Destroyed trust leads to no ministry. No ministry possibilities if there's no trust. Accusations are the devil's language. The devil is an accuser. The devil wants to accuse God's people, the people that God has put to lead his church. He is an accuser. And sometimes he even gets an ally within the church to do the accusing for him. And when that begins to happen... It needs to either get shut down immediately or else it's going to break down issues in the church. It's going to break down the unity. It's going to divide the church. Don't let it happen. Don't be the devil's mouthpiece and be an accuser. And when someone comes to you with a charge against an elder, oh, I heard this. You wouldn't believe what this elder said. That elder's actually a terrible husband. That elder's actually a complete jerk in person. That elder's actually totally full of himself once you, once you get to know him. Oh, that elder's just in it for the money. That elder's just in it for himself. You've got to not only not contribute, but you've got to shut it down. You've got to shut it down. It's like gossip. It comes to you. If it stays going after it hits you, <laughs> it's a problem. So the, the, the church is given this responsibility to not admit a charge when it's just a person whimsically lobbing the grenade of a charge, an accusation to an elder, shut it down, don't admit the charge. But secondly, the members need to be protected when there is true sin, right? You ever been in a church where elders have sinned and lacked integrity? You ever been in a church where the leadership was walking in persistent, unrepentant sin and no one did anything about it? I hope you haven't, but the sad reality is it happens all too frequently. And so Paul needs to deal with this. The members of the church need to be protected from the sinning elder. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Rebuke them. Word literally means expose them, shed the light on it, make everyone aware of what's happened. Rebuke the elder. When do you do it? When do you do it? 
First of all, we already saw when there's two or three witnesses, when there's more than one seeing us, this means it's observable, it's obvious, everyone's noticing it. Uh, there are people witnessing the lack of integrity in the leadership. Uh, there's two or three more witnesses. Uh, there's a sin that's so obvious. Uh, it's not just something that you perceive maybe is happening in the heart of the elder. You know, the elder's a sinner. Any leader in the church is going to be a man who struggles with sin because he's a sinner. Uh, it's not talking about the, the day struggle with sin all elders are in a battle against sin they all are and what the Bible calls you to do in those cases is to forbear with one another the Bible calls us to cover a multitude of sins why because that's what love does you're never gonna have perfect elders until you're in heaven where Jesus is the perfect elder (laughs) in this life your elders will be men who sin but there's a difference between that kind of sin between the the humble, confessing type of elder who is open about his struggles and the sinning elder who's living in obvious sin, apparent sin, witnessed sin, and then see that word? Persistent sin. This has the idea of being headstrong. This has the idea of of going into it unwilling to listen to people who might be correcting you. This is persistent sin. Persistent, unrepentant, undealt with sin where there's no humility to actually acknowledge the accusation or the charge or the correction that might come their way. They are persistent in sin. The church is not helped if the elder in sin is protected to the degree that they're allowed to continue sinning without ever being exposed. The church is harmed that way. It might have some, uh, some people are like, no, it would be much more harmful to call out the elder. No, it's actually what exactly you need to do. It's exactly what needs to happen. Expose them. That's what rebuke means. And now listen, that means me. I want you to hear that from me. That if I ever am in headstrong, persistent sin, open and obvious, that you are seeing it in two or three witnesses, are witnessing my own sin. Listen, you got to deal with it. And if I die after this sermon, I keep making that reference, hopefully nothing happens. If I die after the sermon is over, you will still have to do that with whatever leaders are in this church. This is a non-negotiable part of church health that elders need to know they are accountable They can't get away with it. The ministry is not a place to hide their sin. And what's the result? Look at what it says. If you do this, you rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. That is a good fear. That is a healthy fear. That the other elders or the rest of the church, I think it's everyone included, that there is a sense of holy fear. You've probably at some point in your life have seen or heard of someone in leadership who disqualified themselves. It's devastating. And one of the most devastating things is when that person you thought, at least on the outside, was living a model life, life of integrity, and suddenly it's unveiled that they've been living in secret sin. It's absolutely devastating. But one of the things that happens when that is finally exposed, it is a healthy reminder to everyone 
that we too, if we are not clinging to Christ in humble desperation, we too can go the same direction. Every time uh, someone in leadership fails or falls morally, what is it? It's an opportunity for the whole church to humble themselves and say, oh Lord, let me not go that same direction. Oh Lord, hold me fast. It's a time for self-examination. It's a time to remember the fear of the Lord, the seriousness of sin, and to look within and say, oh Lord, preserve me from this. I don't want to go that direction. I want to be holding fast to the truth. Now, it can be hard. If this is happening in a, in a life of an elder, it is so hard to confront that elder and rebuke him in the presence of all, as this says. And that's why verse 21 is in the Bible. Look at this. It says, Timothy? I just almost imagine that this conversation happening between Paul and Timothy. Timothy, if these elders in the church are your friends and you've served alongside them and they're the ones that are the guilty ones in persistent sin, you can't make exceptions. And that's why he says, verse 21, in the presence of God, it's almost like Paul begins to beg Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. You can't have your buddies that are safe from this. You can't have your other elder posse that is okay and they're not going to have this same accountability. You've got to be unbiased. You've got to have no partiality. You can't prejudge here. He's calling all of heaven to the stand. and says, Timothy, as the leader of this church, God the Father is watching. God the Son is watching. All the holy angels are watching. And they know what's happening. They see the hidden sin of the elder. You can't hide it. You better deal with it. Don't act as if you could just hush-hush this thing and make sure everything's okay. And so Timothy has to be reminded of this immense responsibility that if even his best friend elder were to live in open sin, it's witnessed by two or three witnesses, it's persistent, he's got to be publicly rebuked before the whole church. Now that's a high standard for leadership, isn't it? that any man who would aspire to be an elder needs to feel the weight of this. They are called to live holy lives and they're walking into a responsibility to live a holy life before the congregation. Not a perfect life, but a life pursuing holiness. Now, that's why we get to this third point where I feel Paul now has to give a third direction. You got to pay for your elders. You've got to provide for them in that way. You have to make sure that you protect them from false accusations. You also got to protect the church from sinning elders. And then thirdly, you've got to pick them carefully. Look at, look at verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be hasty. Don't hurry this. Nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. See what he's saying? The laying on of hands is a, a, a shorthand way of saying appointing an elder. Don't be hasty in getting a guy in the position of an elder. Don't hurry that process. Don't jump to it too quickly. I was reading a, a business book this week, and even in the business world, uh, they get this idea. He, 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 his principle was the never leapfrog policy. 
Don't leapfrog. And what he meant by that is in leadership development, don't let people skip the appropriate systems, the appropriate processes, uh, and just put them into a leadership position before they've actually proven themselves. Don't leapfrog them. And sometimes, even in a church like ours, where there's growth and there's good things happening and there's excitement, we could go, oh no, we need some leaders. Let's put people in leadership positions. That is a way to just kill the church in the future. To just put people without any qualifications into leadership because the need is so high. Throwing people into positions of teaching, into positions of oversight. That is not the way that the Bible says that we should do it. Be not hasty. Don't be hurried in this. It takes time. Don't let people skip over normal requirements because you're desperate to get someone to fill the void. It's really easy to appoint an elder. It's really hard and sometimes hurtful to remove one. Don't rush it. There's a key ingredient to any appointment to elder, and that ingredient is time. My, my kids last week for Mother's Day wanted to make brownies for Ashley, and so they got all the right ingredients. They did the homemade thing. They found Ashley's recipe, put it all in, they mixed it all up, and then put it in the oven. The oven was set. They shut the door, and they waited about one minute and opened it back up and wanted to see if the brownies were ready. And they weren't, and they shut it, and they came back another minute later. The brownies ready? No, the brownies are not ready. not going to be ready for a while. There's one last ingredient you forgot. It's an ingredient of time. <laughs> Let's set a timer and come back in 20 minutes and the brownies will be ready. This, this, is, this is true in a church. Leaders are developed over time. You could have the right training system. You could have the right process. You could have the best church culture, all these things. It just takes time. It just takes time to appoint an elder. Don't be hasty. Don't hurry. In other words, what's the opposite? Take your time laying the hands on these elders. Take your time appointing men to leadership. They're going to be in a hugely important role. Go slowly. Be patient. Trust the Lord. And he goes on to make this very interesting statement. Nor take part in the sins of others. You see that? End of verse 22. Nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The word take part is in Greek the same word for fellowship, koinonia. Don't appoint them so quickly that you're fellowshipping in their issues when they come in and hurt the church. What he's saying really is that when the church appoints people to leadership and, the, and they're not ready yet, the church appoints elders to leadership who aren't qualified in their character, and those people in leadership actually begin to hurt the church and divide the church because they're never ready to begin with. You know who's partially guilty? It's the people who appointed them. It's because they hurried into it. And they're actually fellowshipping in the sins of the person who's messing up the church. Uh, there have been times when I've heard about situations where young pastors have gone into a ministry maybe that they weren't ready for yet, they hadn't been trained up yet, and, and they go in and they blow up the church. Maybe they're too dogmatic, and maybe they just come in with an agenda and they don't love the people the way they ought to. That's certainly partially the fault of that individual that goes in and does that. But I also wonder if it's the fault of those people who appointed him or called him or the person who said, yeah, this guy's ready, to pointing him to that position. I think that's exactly the point here. If you're hasty in the laying on of hands, you take part of the guilt of the person who's not ready. You're partially guilty if you're getting people in leadership positions who are not yet ready for them. So don't take part in your sin. Keep yourself pure from that. How? Don't be hasty to get elders into leadership. And then he has this little aside, verse 23, you see that? Which is just baffling to scholars, by the way. Like you read the commentaries on this, no one knows why Paul says this, right where he says this, but he gives a little 
insight here to Timothy. He probably had some stomach sicknesses and maybe was refraining from any kind of uh, wine. And so he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It could be that because of what was happening in chapter 4, there were these elders in the church, these false teachers were forbidding certain foods, and so Timothy had been abstaining, and now Paul's reminding him, no, you can have a little bit. It's actually good for your stomach. Keep, keep at it. It'll be good for your ailments. No one's really quite sure why he says that. Because back in verse 24, he picks up on the exact same thing that he had said before about choosing elders carefully and slowly. Look at verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous. That is, they're obvious. Uh, the word conspicuous has the idea of uh, someone's going and there's a trail following behind them. You could think of uh, a speedboat with the wake that follows behind them. Or you could think of a parade and the person up front in the parade following behind them. Some people, wherever they go, they have a parade of drama following them everywhere. Everywhere they go, there's a parade of sin behind them. And that's what he's saying. Their sins of some people is just completely obvious. It's conspicuous. And it goes before them all the way to judgment. But then it says, but the sins of other appears later. Now, some people have the seeds of issues in their heart, the seeds of disqualifying sin in their heart, but they're not obvious, they're not visible, they're not going before them, but they appear later. And that's another evidence or another reason, I should say, that Timothy needs to be slow in how he appoints elders. Some of them have these problems, they're so deep, they're so unnoticed that you've got to give them some time to see if they're going to come out. Verse 25, so also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. His point is this, in the end, your character will show. In the end, your character will re be revealed. If you're able to hide your sin for a little bit, eventually, it, maybe it's not parading behind you on your way to judgment, but maybe it's going to appear later. Or maybe you're the other kind, your good works are conspicuous, they're hidden, but even those good works eventually will be brought to the light and you'll be seen with the character that you actually have. The point is this, everything's going to be revealed, friends. Think about this. Your true character is going to be revealed. Let that sit on your heart for a little bit. Your true character cannot be hidden forever. Your character will come forth. Given enough time, the truth will be revealed about who you really are. Time and truth go hand in hand. You can hide for a little bit. You can hide for some time. And in the end, it will all be revealed. Do you see that little phrase? The sins are going before them to what? Judgment. I want you to hear this. All of us are going to face the day where we stand before God in judgment, that we will stand before Him, there is a confrontation coming. There is a confrontation for every single one of us. And some of us will have things exposed in this life and will be able to deal with it. And many of us have. We've revealed, the, the, the sin in our hearts has been revealed and we've confessed it to the judge and we've said we're guilty. We need a Savior. And we've understood that Christ is our Savior. That His perfect life was lived on our behalf and His death was in our place and He rose from the dead for us. And that we, knowing our own guilt and knowing that we're going to stand before God, have reached out to trust in Christ. Judgment's coming. 
And yet Christ has taken the judgment that we've deserved and we entrust in Christ are completely forgiven. But I wonder if some of you maybe have not yet taken Christ as your Savior. So even though you might not have this parade of sin loudly marching behind you everywhere you go, the sins of others appear later. And could it be that the sin of unbelief will be exposed on that last day? And it will be exposed to you and to God and to all the angels that you in fact had no saving faith? Are you trusting Christ this morning? The good news is that God loves to save sinners. And if you were to evaluate yourself and you were to go, I'm actually guilty before a holy God. I have nothing to offer. My sins, maybe they're, they're buried deep down within, but I'm hiding them. Maybe no one else would know and the old baby, maybe no one else here would understand, but there are issues that I have not given to God. There are sins I'm not confessing or repenting or turning from. Listen, there's coming a day it's all exposed anyway. And the gospel call is in Christ there is grace. He will cover your sin. You don't have to cover yourself in hiding. And so you, if you are not a Christian, and you've been wondering, what is all this talk about elders? You know what the elders are called to do? The primary thing the elders are called to do is guard the gospel and make sure the gospel's clear. And here's what we need to say to you this morning. If you have not trusted Jesus, God loves to save sinners. He would love to save you this very moment. And Christ is offered to you as a Savior that if you trust in Him, all your sins are forgiven. And all even the inward sins that you're unaware of, He'll wipe clean. And He will invite you into His eternal family forever with him in glory and that that judgment that he's talking about you will not need to fear because perfect love casts out fear and Christ has loved us so perfectly in the gospel unbeliever if you're here non-Christian if you're here trust in Jesus right now and be saved and fear not judgment any longer and for the time being may it be a reminder that if you are walking in some sort of secret sin, even as a Christian, there will come a day that it will be exposed. And even right now, what is secret on earth is scandal in heaven. Everyone sees up there. God knows you're not hiding from anyone. And so the call is to come in humility and repentance and faith, to confess the darkness of your life or your heart, and to begin a journey of open confession to God, walking in humble faith in obedience to Him. For us to be a healthy church, it's a requirement that the elders are cared for. It's required that, of course, that they're good leaders, they're competent men of character and conviction. But if we want to be cared for well as a church and to cultivate a healthy church, when you think about these ways we're called to care for the caretakers, invest in them. Make sure they're provided for so that the Word of God can be taught well. Protect them. When there are charges without any backing, don't even admit them and shut them down. Remember also your role in protecting the church from a sinning elder. Those need to be dealt with too. And last, we as a church need to be patient when we think about leaders. Leaders. 
and leadership development. We're not going to be hasty. Why? Because we are a church, and it is our responsibility to be the pillar and buttress of the truth. We are here to make sure the gospel is not only proclaimed in this generation, but Lord willing, for generations to come. And that will be only happening if we are a healthy church with healthy leaders and healthy members. Let's pray. Lord, it is sobering to think about the day of judgment that is before us. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would be humbled by that, that it would be a cause for a righteous self-examination, that we would ask ourselves if we are truly trusting Christ, that we would evaluate if there are pet sins that we're not letting go, Lord, I pray that anyone in this room that's not repentant, humbled, turning from sin to trust in the Savior, that they would see that right now they just must believe in His life, death, and resurrection for them, and they would receive the gift of eternal life by faith, the gift of justification by faith alone, and they would be cleansed. And Lord, we pray that each one of us has been cleansed from our sin, Lord, that we would walk in purity, and that our church would be made healthy, so that you would be glorified in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.